That's right. This is Ryan Leslie, Work Radio, WeWork, iHeartMedia. And I'm so excited to share with you this next episode of Art of the Hustle, a conversation with Scott Harrison, CEO and founder of Charity Water, who turned his life around from a decadent club lifestyle in New York City to a life of serving others, giving the gift of water to millions of people all around the world. Getting right into it, Work Radio, iHeartMedia, it's your boy Ryan Leslie. Right now, it's about, it's about Charity Water. Tell me, for folks that have never heard of Charity Water. Well, it's kind of like the name. <laughs> we're yeah. a charity that helps people around the world get clean water to drink. Uh, we're 10 years old. We just celebrated our 10th anniversary. And uh, there are 663 million people living around the world uh, that are drinking dirty water every day. So that's not okay with us. About a tenth of the world is drinking from swamps and ponds and rivers, drinking water that's making people sick. So our, our mission is to see a day when that number is zero, that every man, woman, child has clean and safe water to drink. Uh, and we do that in a bunch of different ways. So we, we at the same time are trying to reinvent charity because we realize that so many people aren't given to charities because they don't trust uh, 42% of Americans actually distrust charities. So we, we have a, a pretty unique business model in that from day one, 100% of all donations uh, we've ever raised from the public go directly to fund clean water projects that we then prove. And we raise all the overhead money separately from about 115 families, most of them entrepreneurs. Really? So they're literally two bank accounts. The public's money is never touched. Uh, and then there's this other bank account, a smaller one, uh, well, we can pay overhead. our overhead. Yep. We even pay back credit card fees. So we're really trying to do two things. We're trying to get people to give, restore their faith, uh, their trust in charity because we believe giving is good. And then we want, we want to help as many people get access to this basic need as possible. We think everybody can agree that's a good idea. People yes. need clean water. It is, it is a great idea. So we have to get to the roots of how this concept happens. So we take it all the way back. You grew up in Philly mm-hmm. or the Philly area. Yep. I was and, born, born, in, born in Philly. And uh, you had an unfortunate circumstance with your mother when you were young. Mm-hmm. What happened and how? What, what was that impact? Sure. So dad was uh, an electrical engineer. Mom was a writer. Uh, I was born in Center City, Philadelphia. And then we moved to the suburbs of Jersey to get closer to his work. And we moved into this house that had a carbon monoxide gas leak. Now, this is, you know, 30-some years ago. The carbon monoxide detector hadn't been invented yet. Uh, it wasn't on the market. And we just didn't know this. So my mom starts fixing up the basement. She's fixing up this house. She's breathing in these toxic fumes, but it's odorless. It's colorless. Uh, and she starts to slowly deteriorate. Uh, my dad and I got a little sick, but we were only spending nights uh, sleeping upstairs in the house, not during the day. So my mom on New Year's Day walks across my parents' bedroom. She crumples to the floor. She collapses unconscious. We take her to the hospital. Long series of tests discover that she has this massive amount of carbon monoxide in her bloodstream. So thankfully she didn't die, but her immune system from that point on was irreparably destroyed and she became allergic to anything chemical. Uh, Perfume would make her sick. Soap would make her sick. Car fumes would make her sick. Uh, The ink from books would make her sick. You know, the, the paper that's in front of you, if she touched that ink and it got in her bloodstream, she would become very ill. So she designed this life after this, which uh, consisted of charcoal masks connected to oxygen. We built a containment cell for her in the house that was covered in tin foil, And I mean, it was weird stuff growing up. So I was an only child really thrust into a caregiver role at an early age. 
but I love my mom and she was this fighter and she was this strong, vibrant fighter who just couldn't really function normally in the world. I wow. uh, had to eat all organic food. I mean, I remember uh, as a kid once, she told me that she was uh, allergic to the radio, right? And I'm like a teenage kid. I'm like, mom, you just don't want me to listen to the radio. You are not allergic to electromagnetic radiation. So, uh, you know, I, outside her, after which she went to sleep one night, I take a radio and I turn the volume all the way down and I blast her room. You know, she doesn't know it. It's not going to make her sick. Well, she wakes up and she's very sick oh in the goodness. morning. And I, I think that was, you know, as terrible as that sound, it was, it was a really crucial moment for me to realize this is real. Um, this isn't in her head. She's not trying to rain on my, you know, my parade. So I, I had a, a very um, religious upbringing as well. Uh, my parents were just non-denominational Christians, I guess you would say. They didn't sue the gas company for negligence because they didn't want to become bitter. So they probably could have gotten tens of millions of dollars for this. They took $1,800 from the gas company as a, hey, we're sorry, and, and just said, hey, look, it's an accident. So I grew up, you know, this really good church kid, you know, playing the piano on Sundays. And uh, I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't do drugs. I didn't have sex. I played by the rules. And then uh, 18 the happened. Well, those are, those, are the, those are the church rules. And then 18 happened, and New York City happened. Yeah. And I realized that about an hour and a half from where I lived was this crazy place. And uh, I moved to the city at 18, and it was really just a moment where I said, look, uh, now it's my turn. You know, I've spent my life looking after mom, playing by the rules. Now it's my turn. And I became a nightclub promoter. I figured if you're going to rebel, you might as well rebel in style. And, you know, as you know, in this city, there is a job that exists where you can get paid to drink for free and all your friends drink for free. Yes. And you only have to work a few nights a week. So that, that became very alluring. And, uh, you know, there went the next 10 years of my life, that quick. 18 to 28, uh, chasing the dream, you know, climbing up the social network, I guess, of nightlife. And I probably got to top eight you know, and, and our lives looked great on the outside. We were getting paid. Uh, I remember Bacardi used to pay my partner and I $4,000 a month to drink Bacardi in public. And Budweiser paid us $4,000 a month just to be seen drinking Bud in public. So, you know, it was, you, you, you know, the lifestyle. I mean, I it, it looks fast and, um, you know, whatever you're making, you're spending more than you're making. And, and it's, it's 10 o'clock dinner, the club at 12. Uh, for some of us, after hours at five, and you're going to bed at noon while other people are in their lunch break. Yes. So it's also a really unhealthy lifestyle okay. for, for, for a lot of us, or it was for me. Yes. So I, I do this for 10 years, and you know, I wake up in, in 2004 with uh, a cocaine problem, a gambling problem, a pornography problem, a strip club problem. I smoked two packs of Reds for a decade, so I got a coughing problem. Uh, pretty much anything short of heroin you know, I've picked up now as a vice— and it just felt really bad. Um, and I, I had this moment in South America in Punta del Este with, with the jet set, you know, flying on somebody's private plane. And my girlfriend was in the cover of Elle magazine at the time. And, you know, I had the Rolex and the BMW and the Labrador Retriever and the grand piano in my New York apartment. And all these things I thought were going to bring me happiness. And I realized I was the, the most unhappy person I knew. And there would never be enough. You know, there would never be enough girls, there'd never be enough money, there'd never be enough parties. And uh, I would never find what I was looking for, where I was looking for it. And, you know, I, I don't know if this is true for you in, in any way or maybe at some point, but I, I felt like I'd really betrayed, you know, my moral heritage, my spiritual heritage. I had, um, I had been brought up with good values and I'd walked away from them. 
and my my job was just getting people wasted for a living. You know, if I continue down this path, if I even made it to forty, which not everyone in this business does, it's true. Um, if you do make it to forty, you look like you're seventy when you're forty. <laughs> And, uh, you know, my tombstone's going to read, you know, here lies a man who's gotten 5 million people wasted over the course of his life. And I, I just realized something needed to change. So I began to re-explore, you know, a Christian faith, I think, in a different way because it wasn't force-fed to me. And I became really interested in, uh, in service. You know, as I kind of reread what Jesus was all about, he was not religious. He was giving the middle finger to the establishment of the day, the oppressors of the day. He was fighting for justice. He was fighting for the poor. He was pouring out his life in the service of others. And I was getting people to buy $1,000 bottles of Cristal. Yes. And turning away. My, you know, my world was built on exclusion, mm-hmm. keeping people outside the velvet rope, mm-hmm. uh, not inclusion. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, being a pretty radical guy... You know, I begin to rediscover faith. And by the way, I was going back to church then. It was it was rough, bro. They were meeting rough. in the basements of of schools, fluorescent lit schools. What, you know, this, bad this bands. Is, I mean, I couldn't find anything that that fit. Then. And this this is uh this is uh this is a church that you've grown up in. No, I, I'm, just in just I'm just in New York. I'm just I'm trying to go yeah. anywhere. You know, I'm nowadays trying to find my way. Have, up. Nowadays, now they, they got have. Hillsong. Yeah, exactly. a lot of, That's what I was gonna say. The, the yeah. scene has changed it in has ten changed. years, but. I, I was having a real hard time finding anything, you know, that connected. But as I kind of read the purity of, you know, the teaching, it was it was a great way to model life. And um, I became really interested in, I guess, you know, finding the exact opposite of my selfish, sycophantic life. Uh, so I sold everything I owned. I, I liquidated my life. I put up 2,000 DVDs on eBay in a, in a lot back when they were worth something. Did someone buy? Got a couple grand for them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And uh, I begin to apply to humanitarian organizations with the idea of doing one year of humanitarian service. So 10 years of clubs and getting people drunk. What if I served others for a year and see, uh, see where that would take me? So here I am at 28, 2004. I'm applying to UNICEF, Save the Children, the Peace Corps, you know, World Vision, these famous organizations, and no one will take me. I'm rejected by every organization I applied to because I'm a club promoter, and these are serious people. So I, I can't even volunteer for free, bro. <laughs> Finally, one organization writes me back a couple months later and says, if I'm willing to pay them $500 a month, I can volunteer, and I have to go live in a country called Liberia that had just come out of a 14-year civil war. Yes. So I'm in. I'm like, this is, this is perfect. I found the opposite of my life. I'm not volunteering. I got to pay these people six grand a year yeah. to volunteer. Yeah. What was the name of the organization? <clears throat> it's called Mercy Ship. So okay. it was a, uh, a floating hospital ship that would sail up and down the African coast, bringing the best doctors and surgeons uh, to people who couldn't afford access to medical care. So I signed on as their photojournalist. I'd actually gotten a degree at NYU uh, just for my dad, kind of half went. Um, got C minuses, yeah. but had always been a decent photographer and a decent writer. So I said, look, man, I, I, guys, I, I've got 15,000 people on my club list. I've been getting them drunk and inviting them to parties. What if I told them about the amazing medical service work that you guys are doing? Maybe some of them would give some money. Maybe some people would even volunteer. So that was the premise that led to this. And then uh, I just got rocked. I mean, I had never seen poverty before. I, I go from you know, a nice lifestyle in New York City to a country with no electricity, no water, no sewage, no mail. Uh, There was one doctor for every 50,000 Liberians. In America, we have a doctor for 180 of us. 
So I, I saw leprosy. I saw facial tumors. I saw flesh-eating disease. I saw people who had been burned by the rebels beyond recognition, missing faces, you know, arms fused together. Some of the most crazy, intense suffering. And then these unbelievable doctors who could be in the Maldives with their family, could they have the money to, were operating for free every day uh, in Liberia. So it was, it was deeply, deeply moving for me. And, and my one year there actually turned into two years. And all the while, I'm blasting my 15,000-person club list. So they got a little smaller. Right. <laughs> Not everybody wants to see pictures of, uh, you know, cleft lips or cleft right. palates or tumors. And you were, you were, you were photographing all Everything. of this? I took 50,000 photos the first year. My job was to document every medical procedure uh, done by the ship, and we would do uh, almost 2,000 a year. Okay. So I was scrubbed up in eight-hour surgeries. I'm out in the leprosy colonies. I mean, it, it was... It was amazing. I mean, it was amazing because these stories ended well. I mean, we were giving people their sight back uh, by a $20, 20-minute, 20 $200 cataract surgery. Wow. You know, watching a 30-year-old woman see for the first time in her life and tackle me and tackle the nurse and, you know, scream as she sees her child. Uh, I mean, it was a really emotional place. Thanks for tuning in. It's time to take a quick break to hear from our brand partner. Hey, I'm Patrick Stewart, and I'm an entrepreneur who owns a film production studio. I'm always on the move, whether it's on site or with different clients, in the edit or in the office. I'm never sitting around. That's why it's important for me to always be accessible. With Verizon One Talk, I can be reached no matter where I am or what I'm doing. Missed calls means missed opportunities, and that's something I can't afford. With One Talk, all of my devices are connected under the same number, so I never have to worry about where I am, and I know I'm reachable. To me, it's the best option for anyone who's an entrepreneur on the go. And we're back. Wow. Through this experience, you are starting to see what is the root of a lot of the medical issues. Yep. And how did you get to water? Well, to give you, you know, a sense of the scale of the problem, we would flyer the country before the ship would actually arrive in the port looking for sick patients. And we had about 1,500 surgery slots that we'd fill over eight months. And my third day on the mission... Uh, I grab my cameras, it's 5 in the morning, I jump in a Land Rover, and I've heard that the government gave us their football stadium, the soccer stadium, to see the patients. Okay. I'm like, dude, are we going to fill up a soccer stadium, really? Turn the corner at 5 in the morning, there's 7,000 people wow. standing outside in the darkness wow. for 1,500 surgery slots. So that was the scale of, we didn't have enough doctors, we didn't have enough money, we turned away over 5,000 people that day that just couldn't get in the doors. So as I spent more and more time off the ship, off the medical ship, in the rural areas, as you said, I saw the water that people were drinking, and, and I saw human beings drinking from swamps, fetid, green, nasty swamps we wouldn't let our dogs drink from. And I learned that 50, more than 50% of the people in Liberia didn't have clean water to drink. So, you know, you don't have to be that smart to put together these things. Wow, kids are washing their face with disgusting, contaminated river water and drinking it. And 7,000 sick people are turning up outside a stadium, many of them blind, trachomas waterborne, uh, many of them, you know, stuff growing on their face with flesh-eating disease, cankerum oris, which was waterborne. So I just put these together. So I'm scrubbed up in these surgeries telling the surgeons what I'm seeing out there, and they're, they're validating it. They're saying, yeah, if people had clean water, we'd have a lot less work to do. So I just, I became interested in water through health and began to learn about the link between disease and bad water. And 
uh, just kind of said, well, how come nobody's, it's great that we're doing these expensive surgeries, you know, these huge hospital ships, but how come no one is working on this root cause of so much of the sickness, of so much of the disease? Uh, At the time, there were a billion people worldwide without water. So this is, we've actually made a lot of progress over the last decade. Uh, And that was really, you know, that was the thing that stuck with me of everything I'd seen. Um, I I used to sell $20 bottles of Voss to people who wouldn't even open them. They wouldn't even break the seal, bro. They'd come in, oh, let me get 10 bottles on the table, right? $200 of water that would go and and hear human beings, you know, women are, are giving their children water that watching their children die of diarrhea. You know, our kids get diarrhea. We go to the Dwayne Reed and buy that blue stuff if, if we need to hydrate. And we just give them clean water. You know, that's not an option there. Yeah. You know, they go back to the river. And yeah. you're watching your child die of dehydration in your arms. Yeah. Completely preventable. So I became really interested in water. Uh, there, was, there were a lot of customers out there. A billion people was a, was a big audience. And the largest kind of water charity in America was a tiny $12 million a year organization. So there wasn't the awareness, the scale. Um, it didn't even have its own goal with the UN. It wasn't water, clean water wasn't a part of the Millennium Development Goals. It was kind of buried under environment. So that, that's why water. And that's why, you know, I started Charity Water 10 years ago for that mission. When you really think about the scale of a billion people needing clean water and you there, I can imagine there in your scrubs and having this epiphany, what is the ignition that says, I can actually tackle this problem? Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people would mm-hmm. just stop mm-hmm. at that moment and say, okay, this is way too big. I'm going to just keep doing what I'm doing right here on the Mercy Ship. I'm doing good work. I know they're doing good work. What gives someone the, the heart to say, look, I really think I can tackle this problem? I think uh, I was an optimist. So you could fixate on the 5,000 people that we turned away. But I was documenting up close and personal the 1,500 people we helped. Yes. And, you know, it's someone said to me once, do for one what you wish you could do for many. Because a lot of people just get paralyzed. They say, well, I'm not going to help anybody, right? I'm not going to write a check to any charities because I can't write them to all of them. And, you know, seeing these doctors make an impact one patient at a time, then the second patient, then the third patient, and before we sailed away, we'd help 1,500 people. Um, you know, we could come back to that port a year later and help another 1,500 people. Mm-hmm. And we could come back another year and help another 1,500 people. And now you're at 4,500 people. Right. Right. That third year, you would have knocked out all five, or the fourth year, you would have knocked out all 5,000. So I think I just had an, an optimistic approach that you just start with one village getting water and then two villages. That's how it started. So day one of Charity Water, 10 years ago, the only thing I knew how to do was throw a party in a club. So this is before a place called 10 June opened. I knew the owners and said, hey, before you open this club to the public, let me do my 31st birthday party there. Okay. Um, you know, I need everything for free. I'm going to need, you know, the booze for free. I'm going to need everything. Uh, and, I, and I promised everybody open bar. And I charged everyone a $20 donation on the way in. And unlike the past, where I would have put $15,000 cash in my pocket, uh, maybe gone to Atlantic City, mm-hmm. uh, or, or partied, we took 100% of the $20 we got from everybody, the $15,000, and we did our first six projects. We, we actually didn't even build wells. We fixed six broken wells in a refugee camp in Uganda. Okay. And we sent the photos and the GPS coordinates back to those 700 people that attended the party. So it was, you know, even in that, it's so interesting how you framed that question. Even in that scenario, there were 31,638 people living in this refugee camp. 
they should have had over 100 wells throughout this camp, you know, one for 300 people. So we only did six. So we made a tiny dent. But then I visited those six, and I met over 1,000 people drinking clean water from those six wells that 700 people had come to a party and just tossed 20 bucks in the door. Yeah. And, you know, from a business model approach, telling people what we did with their money may sound so simple, but charities don't do that. Charities ask you for money, you give them money, then they ask you for more money, and yes. you give them money, and they ask you for more money. And we said, well, wait a minute, if people actually saw the impact their 20 or 200 or $2,000 or $20,000 donation, whatever it was, they saw the impact. Maybe they would continue to give joyfully yes. instead of just throwing up their hands and saying, oh, what's the point? That's true. So that sounds so simple, but we try to just build that into every aspect of how Charity Water worked with donors and supporters and, and volunteers over the last 10 years. Touching on that, you believe that is the differentiator for Charity Water is the ability to do effective storytelling about what, people's contribution support is actually doing in the communities that you're serving? I don't think it's that simple. I think, you know, if you look at, you know, any successful company, you know, there's not one thing. Um, I think the, the business model is powerful. Being able to take the number one objection that people have about charity completely off the table is powerful. Yes. How much of my money goes? A hundred percent. Yes. What's next? <laughs> right. So that's, so, so you, you kind of have some people at hello who right. are just not giving because of overheads or, or they yeah. question that. Right. Um, I think uh, being able, th this idea of proof, this idea of connection. So we, we mounted GPS units on our drilling rigs. They have Twitter accounts now. We're always looking for ways to connect our supporters with the lives being changed in the field in as real time as we can get. We now have sensors on over 3,000 wells. 3,000 wells in Ethiopia every day are letting us know how much water is flowing. Many, many years later. Some of these projects are six years old. Okay. So we, you know, we want to know that, hey, we're not just drilling this thing um, and then it breaks and the community's back of the swamp. Now we can prove that using technology. So I think that's a, that proof is a differentiator. And then I think, you know, we're, I wanted to build a beautiful brand. Right. Charities have anemic brands often. Their websites are lousy sometimes. Yes. They send you emails that are not mobile optimized. I mean, come on, bro. It's yeah, 2016, true. you know? It's, <laughs> it's not it's that hard to send a mobile-optimized email. It's true. And it's still, so many charities are run by development professionals who don't really value storytelling. They don't value branding and design. And then nobody good wants to go work there if it's not valued at the top. So you can't just, it's not even as simple as just outsourcing it. Go hire some agency to do all your marketing. If you don't care about that. And I married my creative director, so... Right. You know, brand was so important to me. I'd, 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 come, uh, I'd come across this quote in the New York Times by Nick Kristof, who said, toothpaste is peddled with far more sophistication than all the world's life-saving causes. True. I thought, man, it's true and it's broken. And you don't need to spend a lot of money to build a brand. You need good taste. You need to give talented designers a reason to leave Apple or Virgin or Nike and use their design skills in the service of others sure. and value that design and yes. value and care about it. So I think it's the model. I think it's the issue is important. Everybody can agree on water. We were talking about this earlier. Whether you're a Jew or a Christian or an atheist or a Mormon or a Muslim, everybody can come together and say, human beings need clean water. Yes. And it's, you know, people who will fight about every other thing will come together and say, well, we can at least agree on this. Yes. People need water to thrive. They need yeah. water to, to live. Yeah. You, you just touched on marrying your creative director. You guys 
Victoria. Mm-hmm. You guys have. She two just kids. left me. I mean, she left me at the org. Not a. Okay. We, we just had our second kid, and uh, after nine years, she uh, she stepped down to take a break and um, is enjoying now. You're know, running after our our two. Um, but that was the the second hire I made. The first hire I made was to help me with the water programs. Right. I, I'll say one one other really important thing about the business model. I didn't want to go send Westerners over to Africa or India or Asia to do this work. So I really believe that the charity water's role would be raising awareness, getting people to care about our brothers and sisters living thousands of miles away, uh, getting people to care about an issue that doesn't affect them. Right. No one I ever talked to has had to walk eight hours with dirty water on their back. You know, no, no mom I'm talking to, you know, has watched their child die of diarrhea. So that's just, that's hard to do right there. Get people to care about others, an issue that doesn't affect them. Um, And then, uh, so that was the first person I hired was to go and actually find the local partners. I wanted, I believe that for work to be sustainable, for it to be culturally uh, sensitive and appropriate, it had to be led by the locals. So we employ 1,500 locals today. There are 550 Ethiopians in Ethiopia there is not a single person in that team that is not Ethiopian. Mm. Uh, our team is flying around with clipboards, auditing, working with them, uh, making sure the work's being done on time, and really trying to come and serve them sometimes with equipment and, and how do we help. But the work is done you know, in Rwanda. If you're a 13-year-old boy seeing a well drilled in your village, there are eight Rwandans drilling it. Right. Not a guy that looks like me, no one from my team in New York. Mm. So first hire was really helping me build that out, go and find the local partners um, vet them, find the best people doing water. And then the second was a creative director. I just wanted to build a beautiful brand. Sure. And she you know, left an agency world, took a pay cut, gave up all of her healthcare benefits at the time. And then uh, the rest is history. Yeah. So I married the brand. Two kids, two children later. <laughs> two, two kids later. And uh, yeah, and, and, and she's writing a book now on, on, on branding and uh, some of the things that she's learned over the last decade in storytelling and branding, which I think will help uh, a lot of nonprofits and maybe even some startups. Do you ever feel like you're burning the candle at both ends? And what do you do to recharge? I mean, I know there are folks who are listening right now that we work and they feel like, yeah, man, I'm doing 20 hour days and, you know, but they don't have the travel schedule. They don't. And they also don't have the weight of, hey, I want to bring a 600 million person yeah. deficit to zero. What? Is it that uh, that you that are, is there is there a is there a is there a routine is there a is there a is it meditation is there something that you do? I to think recharge? kids really help me. I mean, okay. I, if, if you'd asked me before this, I wasn't great at you know. I'm I'm going to be the last person on this podcast to talk about work life balance. Okay. Um, with kids, man, you want to see them. So, like, I, you know, the minute we're done, I'm gonna my kids getting picked up by preschool um, tonight. Uh, by my best friend, and I'm going to go meet him in the food court and have dinner. Okay. Um, so you, you, you know, I take him to school on Mondays and Tuesdays. Okay. So my assistant is not allowed to book me out before 9.30 a.m. because mm. I take him to school at 8.45 and I mm. need to get into the office. So you, you kind of have some rhythms, um, and, and that's just a lot more family time. Yes. So I, you know, it's really fun. I mean, yeah. I, I enjoy coming, you know, I knock on the door and I can hear him squeal from inside and run and let me in. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you really look forward to that. So I think in some ways that's just helped with the balance. You know, the decade helps too. Charity Water's 10 years on now. Um, as I think about the next decade, I think you go a little more into marathon mode. The beginning is just a sprint. You are just going flat out. Uh, I'm 41 years old. 
So thinking just more about longe- you know, longevity and right. how do I use my time smarter? Um, how do I make sure I'm not burned out? Because yeah. we've all given that speech or had that meeting where we're just running on empty and we sucked. <laughs> you know, and you didn't get the, you know, you, you, yeah. you just, you, you weren't yourself. Yeah, it didn't connect. Um, so I think just now having, you know, 10 years of experience, you kind of, I won't try to do too much. I'd rather take five great meetings in a day than the nine that I might used to take on the road right. to have five good meetings that I'm prepared for. Yeah. And I got a good night's sleep the night before, Yeah, you know, rather than, you know, taking some crazy 10 o'clock dinner and a seven o'clock breakfast, you know, you're going to suck at the seven o'clock breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, one of those two things doesn't work. And, and then I think you're more effective. So I, I don't really have any great, um, you know, words of wisdom on that. The kids has helped keep me sane because I just really like being with my family. Yeah. What's your proudest achievement across all of the work that you've done? Is it is it a specific story? Is it a story of a child, a mother, a family, a village, a country? I think it's staying true to the values of the organization. Okay. You know, we There was this moment a year and a half into Charity Water where we ran out of money and we, we were going to go bankrupt. Uh, I remember that pesky 100% thing. Yes. <laughs> so all the money I raised from the public, we couldn't use for salaries, office rent. Uh, and I was trying to raise that separately, and I just hadn't figured that out. I hadn't found the right people at that moment. And uh, we, we were faced with this moment. We were about to miss payroll, so not be able to pay nine staff uh, or the office. But yet we had $880,000 in that bank account that we couldn't touch, mm. the one for the water projects. Mm. And the advice I was getting from people at the time was go ahead and borrow from that eight hundred eighty grand. Go write an IOU, right? Got to pay your people. Yeah. Got to keep the lights on. Yeah. People would understand. Um, and I just, I really rejected that idea. We had made this bold promise wow. that every single penny would go directly to help people get clean water. So I was going to shut that thing down. I was going to send all $880,000 out, do as many water projects as possible, um, and then um, basically sunset the charity and say, hey, the 100% model didn't work. Uh, at that moment, you know, and I, I'd been praying. So, you know, there was an element of faith. Uh, although I remember with this prayer, I, I think I had very little faith, but you know, God, I need a miracle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm not going to, I'm not, you know, if, if we borrowed one penny of that money, our integrity would be compromised. We might as well all resign in shame. Mm. You know, there'd be no point to the thing. So I was, I was praying for a miracle. And um, as, as things would go, a complete stranger at that moment walked into the office took a two-hour meeting with me, learned about the vision for the organization, and then left and wired a million dollars in the overhead account. So I went from bankrupt, shutting down the charity, to 13 months of working capital. Mm. Um, and then used that time to now put together 115 entrepreneurs and families who fund all the overhead, okay. uh, including that person. So um, it's it's people like Daniel Ack and Jack Dorsey and Sean Parker and uh, Angela Ahrens and John Doerr and mm. a, an amazing group of founders say, it's okay, use all of our money to pay for the overhead. Wow. And then a million people have gotten a pure giving experience and growing. Wow. But I think I'm most proud of that, of really you know willing to die for the integrity of of the mission. And we've had many, many opportunities to compromise since then. But, you know, we always kind of go back, well, if we didn't compromise then, if we were willing to bet the farm and shut the whole thing down and not even exist on our values, you know, uh, why, why would you ever tell a white lie? You know, I mean, this goes down to just culturally, we, we actually have a no white lies kind of 
policy. So you would never hear a secretary at Charity Water say that someone's not in if they were in. They'd be fired. You know, mm. there's no tolerance for mm. any kind of anything that is not totally integrous. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's been great. We've, we've helped six and a half million people clean water. But the way that we've done it, I'm really proud of. I'm, um, I'm proud for you. That sounds amazing. <laughs> uh, what's the best advice that you've gotten that you believe can apply to every young entrepreneur, every aspiring entrepreneur that's listening now uh, at their WeWork station? Oh, man. Uh, I think storytelling is the future. Uh, you got to figure out how to tell your story, yeah. uh, whether you're starting a nonprofit. Uh, you know, <laughs> I came across a stat the other day that the World Bank, uh, someone had done a study of the World Bank's website, uh, and they put up lots of PDFs for people to read found that 40% of the PDFs had never been downloaded once. Okay, so if that's the old way, you know, there's not a story in those PDFs. But the World Bank, I'm sure, is doing amazing work. And yeah. there are stories there. Uh, people respond to story, not statistics. If I tell you guys that 663 million people don't have clean water, you just go numb. We can't imagine 663 million people doing anything, let alone dying of bad water. But if I tell you that I was living in a village where a 13-year-old girl was walking eight hours every day, and after her walk one day, she slipped and fell, she spilled her water, and she hung herself from a tree because she didn't want to go back, that's one of those 600. And I tell you her name was Letakiros Hailo, and I show you a photo of the tree where they found her 13-year-old body swinging, and I show you a photo of her grave in the church where she was buried and where she got her water and a broken pot. Um, all true, by the way, one of, one of the most tragic stories we've come across. It's just a different, it's a different thing. You know, you, you, you can put a face to a mind-numbing statistic. You can imagine um, that moment of shame for a little girl who has spilled her water and knows that her family is going to go without water. And even worse, she's broken a $3 clay pot, mm. you know, this valuable asset. And mm. Rather than face them, you know, might as well just end it there because she screwed up so badly. So mm. I think these, you know, that we are creatures of story. We respond to story. And whether whatever story your business has, you've got to learn how to tell it. Um, public speaking, all that kind of stuff. Like, it's just, it's, it's a storytelling world. And the people, I mean, look at Steve Jobs. You know, he used to get up there and tell stories. The, look at Elon Musk. He gets up yeah. there and just tells stories. Yeah. If you could trade jobs with anyone, who would it be and why? I think it'd be amazing to. Uh, I think it'd be amazing to be a well driller. I wow! Mean, the, these guys are drilling eighty wells a year for their people. Uh, imagine, imagine rolling into a village in Ethiopia, uh, and you're a thirty-eight-year-old Ethiopian hydrologist, mm. and four hundred people gather around the drilling rig, and you know you press a lever and you throw some compressed air down, and a plume of clean water shoots up. 100 you know, feet in the air, and 400 people start screaming and throwing popcorn at you and singing and <laughs> dancing. Uh, and you get to do that 80 times a year mm. to lead your people, your community, your country forward. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're covered in mud at the yeah. end. They're 12-hour days. Yeah. You know, you're sleeping in huts. But yeah. the, uh, the satisfaction of that job, you know, being on the ground, right? I get to raise awareness and the money, and I get to be there for some of those celebrations. Right. But, but actually doing it with your hands yeah, be pretty amazing. That sounds awesome. For folks that listened and were, were as moved as I was by this exchange, how does someone lend themselves in service or donate or support the yep. work that you're doing? 
One of the biggest challenges for us is that we start over at zero every year. So million people have been very generous. They've given to this. Uh, we've uh, been able to help almost 7 million people get clean water. So what does that exactly mean? Over the course of the fiscal year, you actually make sure that all donations that are given... They get out there. Year, get yep, out there. yep okay. they get out there. We're not sitting on money okay. uh, you know, for these water projects. They're going out to help people. So when we, when we hit 10, we said, well, what if we could launch um, a subscription program, a membership program, you know, where we don't start at zero every year. So rather than you, know, you giving $100 once and then never coming back, uh, we could build a community who would actually commit to seeing an end to the water crisis. So we launched something called The Spring uh, on, on our 10th anniversary on September 7th. Uh, with the goal of getting 10,000 members. We're at 6,000 members. Mm. So that is a simple thing. And and basically, we're we're asking people to consider giving $30 a month okay. to give one person clean water. But we have people giving 5 bucks a month. And we have people giving $100 a month. Sure. So it's less about the money. It's really about bringing people into this community who could give something every month, knowing that 100% of the money is going. And we're feeding stories of impact. Uh, I just got a, a proof while we were doing this of, of a video going out to our spring members of, of uh, well in Ethiopia that, that was just built. So that's uh, we, we also made a 10-year video that people could just watch and share, which has some of the crazy photos and images. Um, and that's at charitywater.org uh, this spring. Okay. Uh, or just at our homepage. So that, okay. that's a that's an open invitation. I'm a member. My wife's a member. We'd love to get to 10,000. Um, and it's a really simple way to connect with the organization. You know, we subscribe to stuff that we get benefits. Spotify, Netflix, Hulu. This is just a simple idea. It's a subscription program that other people benefit. I think it's, it's, it is really about awareness. You know, and I do think that when you do have the, when you happen to have the audience, you're absolutely right. It's about being very clear about telling that story because the story is going to move. That human story is always going to move someone. Yeah. So uh, if you'd like to join me in subscribing, being a member of The Spring, you could do so at charitywater.org. The Spring. And uh, how, how much do you actually get out with your camera still? Do you, how, how many, I still, how many I still get out there. I just yeah. got Leica to give me a couple cameras for okay. this last trip. They okay. loaned me a few. So okay. I, I really use it as a tool to tell stories. I'm not a great photographer. Uh, the beauty of building this organization is that now I've got way, way better photographers than myself yeah. who go out and, and shoot for us, uh, yeah. often for free. So it's it's fun finding people who are much better and can bring more to the table. So I, I do it for fun. You know, when, whenever I'm in the field, you'll see me with the camera. I, right. I love shooting out there still. All right. Awesome. Scott, thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, man. Great I conversation. Absolutely. This is Ryan Leslie. If you like what you heard today, come back and check out more Art of the Hustle stories. For more about Art of the Hustle, go to iHeartRadio.com slash Art of the Hustle.